Welcome to the Christmas holiday episode of A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. This show will be the last of 2021 and we're going out with a bang by welcoming back the inimitable Rory Sutherland and his co-author Pete Dyson to discuss their new book, Transport for Humans, Are We Nearly There Yet? Before we strap in for that, I'm extremely excited to introduce you to my new sponsor of A Load of BS and that is Zeitgeist software company Crankwheel. From Iceland originally, these guys are as cool as ice and are sweeping up new clients like crazy as more of us get Zoom fatigue and want simpler ways to engage virtually with colleagues. Now some people have the ability to paint a picture in a few words. Crankwheel is for the rest of us. Crankwheel gives you zero friction screen sharing during voice calls. So you send a link to the person on the other end of the line, they enter that seamlessly on any browser, any device. No logins, no registering, no what's my bloody password. Crankwheel is particularly great for those first sales calls or for onboarding new customers. It's really for any business looking to engage with customers more efficiently. Now, a load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel unlimited for two months by signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. And that's Crankwheel spelt C-R-A-N-K. W-H-E-E-L. I'll leave that detail in the show notes too. Right, comfort break over, we're back on the road. Now you may have read my Monday BS piece a few weeks ago previewing today's conversation with a little riff on the wonders of the London Underground. Well today you get the full fat version and I can assure you that the cream has risen to the top. In fact it's spilling over and clogging the arteries like the M25 on Boxing Day. What fun! This anniversary appetizer is bursting with flavour, celebratory abandon and indulgence. And since so many of us will be battling the motorways and trains to reach loved ones in the coming days, what more appropriate treat for today than transport design to keep you toasty? Well, having almost exhausted my Christmas and travelling puns, I should introduce my guests. Rory is well known to many of you as Global Vice Chairman of Ogilvy, Behavioural Scientist, Founder of the Nudge Stock Festival, Writer, Raconteur and the man responsible for making the Seven Oaks to London Blackfriars line fashionable again. Pete Dyson is the principal behavioural scientist at the Department for Transport. Pete established a new behavioural science team within DFT in April 2020 to tackle the COVID-19 response and recovery, sustainability and the impact of future transport technologies on behaviour. And that takes us to our conversation, which is all about the potential of behavioural science to design our transport systems for human rather than engineers' consumption. In today's bumper hamper, Rory and Pete tell us about the fetishization of speed and punctuality, solving the conundrum, or waste, of HS2, who Homo transporticus is, how we actually understand what customers want, getting to Exeter when you're not in a rush, seat-backed train tables, products which nobody wants until they own them, the brummy obsession with driving and roads, intelligent rationing of trips into London, and other BS experiments. Ladies and gentlemen, your enjoyment is our primary concern here at A Load of BS. So for now, sit back, relax, smoke if you'd like to, and geek out in the capable hands of my glorious guests Pete Dyson and Rory Sutherland. And I'll speak to you again before we close to remind you to subscribe at aloadofbs.substack.com and on Apple or Spotify. Take your seats for takeoff. 
Rory and Pete, welcome both of you to A Load of BS. It's my pleasure to welcome you back, Rory, and Pete here for the first time. Hello, hello. Good morning. Thanks for having us. It is a great pleasure. Now, Pete, I'm going to give you the first word. What's it like doing a press junket with Rory? Oh, well, it's an enormous, uh, <laughs> enormous fun, and it's a celebration of the work that we've been doing over the past many years. I think that's far too complimentary. I'm sure it's yeah. terrifying and frustrating in equal measure. Yeah, exactly. Pete, you were being extremely diplomatic. Now, you've co-authored a new book, Transport for Humans, Are We Nearly There Yet?, which is all about behavioural science's huge potential to design our transport systems for human rather than engineers' consumption. Now, I'm tickled by transport's endless capacity to provide us with puns, metaphors and quasi-aphorisms. Certainly, Are We Nearly There Yet? is one of the battle cries of our youth. I was wondering whether you had a bit of fun with all your chapter titles. We did have a bit of fun with them, yeah. Trying to really position a lot of the chapter titles for the user as questions, like how will we get there? How are we going to pay for this? Will we go again? A chapter about habits. So there are a lot of puns. And I think one of the reasons that are we nearly there yet endures is it is, of course, a childish question, but it's actually underpinned by so much of our experience of transport being about time. And it's something that almost no other sector really looks at. No other retail sector, for instance, cares too much about how people experience the passage of time and why this sort of impetus to get to our destination is so insignificant to us. So let's do some background digging to start with. What's the central thesis of the book? What's wrong with transport? Effectively, it's become dominated by objective metrics as though people were freight. And funnily enough, this probably isn't a coincidence in that many, many transport forms actually were designed as freight carriers before they were designed to carry humans. So the interesting thing there, I think, is that the metrics we use assume that time spent travelling is a disutility and the purpose of any travel organisation is to get you from A to B as quickly as possible. And so we fetishise things like speed and to some extent fetishise things like punctuality. And the metrics we are chasing in the optimization of any transport system have become increasingly misaligned with what people really care about. And therefore, if you want people to choose to travel by more sustainable modes, for example, or you want people to travel in a more pro-social way, or you simply want to invest intelligently in travel in a way that people will respond to, our argument is that we need to start paying attention to how people perceive the world as travellers rather than how engineers perceive transport networks as standalone systems. And part of that, by the way, is we need to be much more joined up in our thinking because the metrics tend to look at things one leg at a time, whereas humans, of course, will look at a journey as an end-to-end process where the biggest pain points may be in the intermodalities rather than in the journey itself. Are you saying that the principle then of comparative advantage is far less relevant now in the, how we think about transport system design? Yes, that's fair. Well, I mean, what I think is true is that obviously we need to have some sensible metrics. I'm not suggesting for a moment that no one cares if their train is an hour and a half late. But pursuing punctuality down to the minute doesn't really deliver very much in terms of human benefit. I always find it slightly hysterical that Ryanair play trumpets when their plane arrives on time. Because everybody on this plane, they're either on holiday or they've built 45 minutes margin of error into their trip. Whether the plane arrives on time or four minutes late is immaterial, really, to everybody on the plane. And yet I think, if I'm right, we fine rail companies if a train arrives at a terminus in London more than three minutes late. You know, there's some sort of penalty for that. Now, that strikes me as totally an engineering objective being pursued to the point of diminishing returns. 
You might say that Ryanair trumpets are hiding other sins, but... Uh... You might argue that you want to attract people's attention to the part of the flight that you've got right, rather than the part of the experience you've got wrong. Right. So, yes, you can't entirely blame them for that. But, I mean, one of the reasons I think the book's so necessary is because when you describe these things to people in the transport industry who are heavily versed in the standard metrics and cost-benefit analyses of travel, a few occasions they react with actual hostility. But when they don't react with hostility, it's clear that not much thought has been given to these considerations because engineers effectively love to present things as reductionist Newtonian problems because it's that drug of certainty creation. I can create a single right answer to this question by pretending that only three things matter. Now, you know, as I said, in the early days of those things, pursuing those metrics, no one's suggesting for a second that anyone would go to Manchester if the train travelled at 10 miles an hour. But nonetheless, at some point in that journey, what transport planners are trying to optimise effectively deviates fairly significantly from what passengers care about. Now, I'll give you an interesting example, OK? This is where I came to it, which was writing sceptically about High Speed 2. And my point was this. I argued that I could reduce my journey time from London to Manchester by 20 to 40 minutes, no cost at all. And people looked at me as if I was insane. And I said, no, 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 you're looking at the time spent on the train between Euston and Manchester. My problem is that whenever I go to Manchester, I buy an advance ticket because if I don't buy an advance ticket, it costs a billion pounds. My advance ticket is only valid for one journey. I cannot afford to miss that train because if I do, I end up paying twice, once for the advance ticket and then full fare for the ticket to travel on the subsequent train. So I have to arrive at Euston with 45 minutes to spare to allow an acceptable margin of error. I'm travelling up from if you created a little app which whenever there was excess capacity on the trains leaving 20 and 40 minutes before my designated train, only if there's available capacity, okay, and I could pay five quid to jump onto an earlier train, you would have reduced my journey time by 40 minutes or 20 minutes. It would have improved the revenue management and capacity management of the network significantly by allowing someone to travel on earlier excess capacity. And what's more, you wouldn't have just reduced my journey time, you would have reduced the worst part of my journey. The worst part of my journey is not sitting on the train to Manchester. I enjoy that. People bring me cups of tea. I can look out of the window. I've got Wi-Fi. It's the bit waiting at Euston for 35 minutes where a silly sign says preparing train. That's the bit that annoys me. That's the bit I want to reduce. I imagine there are a whole number of low investment improvements that one can make to transport systems. And we may come on to more of them. But I mean, in, in this sense, for both of you, do you think you know, actually HS2 has far less value than its promoters would claim? I mean, one might also take into account associated environmental concerns. But in terms of praying at the altar of speed, perhaps that's not as important. It's a really interesting question. And there's different levels at which we have a problem here. We're quite really constructive in the book in saying like it's about applying behavioral science in a yes and nature now the best engineers and the smart economists can see the benefits of the things that they're creating they don't always have a framework to value that thing so it's sometimes quite hard to say what's it worth to put wi-fi on the train here what's how important what's it worth to put table seats instead of this seating what's it worth to have very clean windows what's it worth to have x y and z all these human metrics and human benefits are hard to cost up 
up. So to that extent, since you ask about HS2, maybe it does have a questionable case if you made it on time savings alone. What we want to do is help people and help the wider business case to be made to look at the economic, the cultural, the environmental benefits that stack up. And to that extent, it's a very compelling proposition. It's just very hard to necessarily match that quantified and sort of qualified um, set of standards. In defence of the high-speed two people, and I'm a sceptic, but not a vicious opponent. A large part of the argument is around capacity, but for some reason it became transmogrified into a discussion entirely about time savings. I mean, it's a debate, by the way, whether the train needs to go that fast, because, of course, by making the train very, very fast, it makes it very difficult to have intermediate stops. And I would argue that High Speed 2 has completely failed to capture any land value increase. So one of the things you could have done to pay for High Speed 2 is create two stations between London and Birmingham and one between Birmingham and Manchester, own the land around that station and then develop it. Now, you could have made enough money from creating a few new towns on the route, which would more or less have paid for the infrastructure. And yet we seem to have failed to have done this entirely. So it's known very widely that the principal value created by transport is often land value capture. And yet we've thrown that opportunity away. But secondly, the fact that the route, I think Ovara proposed a route which followed the M40, which was much less disruptive to the countryside, because if you already live next to a motorway, you can't complain all that much about there being a train. But that route was discarded because it was considered six minutes slower and something like a minute's time saving was down as being worth a billion pounds in their transport model. That's just whack. Okay, no one has ever got up in the morning and said, I would go to Manchester today, but it takes six minutes too long. It's just not relevant. And so there are lots of things where, of course, to humans, there are massive non-linearity. For instance, Pete and I, Pete spotted this before I did, actually. When you have sufficient frequency on a service, punctuality no longer matters so much. You know, I mean, technically, I think there is a tube timetable, but no one bothers to know it because it's irrelevant. The the heuristic on the tube is you turn up on the platform and you catch the next train. Actually, that's what I do when I go to Sevenoaks Station to travel into London Bridge. And funnily enough, I deliberately try and not memorise the timetable because knowing the timetable stresses you out. It's much more chill just turning up at the station and going, when a train turns up, I'll board it. The worst case scenario is something like a 17-minute wait. In those rare circumstances, I go and buy a cup of coffee. So it's very significant that we're optimising things as though all humans are identical and that they all care about these things in a linear sense. And obviously, that makes mathematical models much easier if you assume a kind of single representative age. Now, another problem with high speed two here is that high speed one, I think we have to defend to the hilt. Because if you live in Canterbury and the journey time from Canterbury is reduced by 30 minutes into St Pancras, for many people, that's saving one hour 200 times a year. Suddenly, someone who lives in Canterbury and Ashford can find work in London if they want to, or vice versa. It's a significant game changer, and it's a journey you'll probably make quite frequently. So saving one person 200 hours a year is a big deal. Saving 200 people one hour a year looks identical for the purposes of a mathematical model, but it patently isn't the same thing. One of them is a life changer to some people and changes the nature of a whole city. The other one is a mild convenience. And I'd lay the same accusation at Concord, by the way, which is that people didn't cross the Atlantic frequently enough for the time saving to be life changing. And in fact, the return journey was worse than flying overnight, really, wasn't it? Yeah. I wanted to put a little colour on the thesis. We've touched on some of this, but tell us, firstly, who is Homo Transporticus and why are they the wrong person to design transport for? 
early on in the introduction, we introduced the character of Homo transporticus. In order to build on that work that has been done with Homo economicus, that will be familiar to many behavioral scientists who have that character to work against, if you like, in terms of the fiction of the rational economic man. In Homo transporticus's case, we felt like we needed to do due diligence to all these superpowers that are imbued on um, and assumed for many travelers of their physical mobility, of their knowledge of the routes, the timetables, their ability to know exactly where they are at any point in time, their non-inclination to just follow whim or habit or get lost. So a lot of those transport aspects that are too much assumed of people. When we design transport systems, but also when we think about how people are going to adopt new technologies, as though, for instance, electric vehicles or many other new technologies would be simply a calculation of what's the lifetime cost of ownership, how much benefit is this to me. When what we really know is people uh, have concerns over new technologies, they have worries, they have fears, they look at their friends and family for guidance, and it's a lot more kind of complex and messy. So that's our Homo transporticus who sort of pops up throughout the book as a way in which we contrast the real travellers, Homo sapiens, both their shortcomings, but also their brilliant features that in many ways the Homo transporticus doesn't even notice. So for instance, a very smart use of human perception has been on the Moscow Metro, where they have a mail announcer for the tube trains running into the city and a female announcer on the way out. A very nice touch, but a very subtle way in which we're harnessing our brain's ability to just notice the gender in different voices. So how much do we really understand, though, about how homo sapiens want to use transport? And indeed, how do we learn more? We need to learn more partly through experimentation and just shrewd observation. So the first thing is you stop being homo transporticus. Well, homo transporticus never exists outside transport models. He's effectively a close relative of homo economicus, which is the strange non-existent imaginary species which populates economic models with stable preferences, perfect trust, perfect information, transitive preferences, all the assumptions that economists make about humanity in order to try to make us mathematically tractable. And Homo transporticus is effectively Homo economicus on a train, obsessively concerned with the efficient use of time, completely blind to any consideration of the quality of time, in the sense that even when the Eurostar was significantly slower before High Speed 1, it was observable that people were significantly travelling by train rather than by plane. And that journey was literally an hour or so longer. Why? Well, I would argue that the quality of the time on the train was inordinately higher than the quality of time when you practice short-haul flights. Because on the train, you plonk your bum on a seat and you have three hours to get on with stuff. Okay, that might be working on the journey out, and it might be drinking the finest wines known to humanity on the return journey. But nonetheless, it was time of some enjoyable quality. Nobody ever boasts about how fast a cruise ship is. Whereas, of course, when you fly, yes, okay, you save time end to end, but most of your time is spent being shunted from pillar to post to check-in to lounge to gates to boarding to 200-yard walk to somewhere or other. And it's generally time that is totally useless. Whereas time spent on a train is not a disutility, quite the opposite. And we could see that by looking at behaviour even before we'd accelerated the train. And so I think a lot of this lies in the difference between theoretical preference and even stated preference and observed behaviour. 
But, and there's a big but here, we've got to be really conscious of the fact that humans, when they look at the tube map, they are already subject to significant systemic biases in perception. Because in order to present that information, for the nerdier listeners, it's technically not a map, it's a schematic diagram. I don't want to be corrected on that. But when you look at the tube schematic diagram, of necessity, the information has to be presented in a form which is easily processable. And the act of doing so requires requires you inevitably to highlight some forms of information and downplay others. So geographical accuracy in terms of distance on the tube map is completely sacrificed to ease of understanding the interconnections. Probably the right trade-off to make. I'm the last person to criticise Mr. Beck for his design, which, by the way, was modelled on wiring diagrams. He was previously an electrical engineer. But it will cause, of necessity, more people to use the central line than should because it's red and it goes from right to left, and fewer people to use the Victoria line because it's kind of curly. It also doesn't mention things. It will cause lots of travellers, lots of tourists, in fact, make a tube journey from Covent Garden to Leicester Square or vice versa, because they have no idea how close those two stations are in reality. By contrast, out on the northwestern corner, I think there are two stations that are something like five miles apart as you get out to Amersham. Now, people will be misled. A lot of people arrive at Paddington and go to Notting Hill Gates to join the central line for instance, because on the map, that's a vertical journey. In reality, you're traveling significantly to the west, and it may be a bad idea. Best thing to do, actually, at Paddington, if you haven't got a huge amount of luggage, walk to Lancaster Gate, take the lift. But again, that is not made evident by the tube map. And there are other facets where my question is that one way you can improve the efficiency of the tube network is not by building new infrastructure, it's by changing the map. And there's even a philosophical argument that there shouldn't be one map, that since you want people making the same journey by a variety of different ways, you want to provide them with opportunities for their different preferences to manifest themselves in different journey types, because otherwise you'll find people over-concentrated on one line and under-using another. Philosophically, it gets into quite interesting territory. So an example would be, in the summer, if the central line was getting overcrowded, you might want to flag the fact that the circle line was air-conditioned and the central line wasn't. So the weird thing that advertising does, which is messing up people's frame of reference, if you have lots of competing entities all playing with people's frame of reference, the overall collective effect is probably quite healthy. Now, to an economist, it drives them crazy because they see single individuals doing things which are suboptimal. But at the collective level, having different utility functions, the fact that people have different utility functions can be used to great advantage. Well, I was curious to discover, by the way, that TFL has its own set of alternative maps or schematics, which I've never seen in the light of day. I mean, they, by the way, they have it. There is a TFL temperature map. There is a TFL taxis map, which is particularly good for nighttime when you're looking for a taxi, when you come up the tube or cycle maps or walking maps. And then there's a whole subculture of other non-unofficial maps. So there's stuff there, but I don't know whether they, they see the light of day. Those ones don't too much, but it cuts to the heart of a nice metaphor Rory's given, which is transport. It's a bit like playing a game of 3D chess, and it's extremely three-dimensional because unlike maybe other sectors that we look at, transport also cannot assume that people have those set preferences. People's, depending on their journey purpose, they may change. So my trip to the airport might be different to my trip to work and my preferences for a trip to see a friend versus a trip on a rainy day versus a trip when I'm not feeling so well. So what we need to do is encompass both. You can't simply ask, how do you want your transport system to work? Oh, I want it like this. Well, 
everybody wanted to be a bit different for different occasions. So we kind of trying to embrace this diversity. Now, a problem that transport uniquely has, unlike many other sectors, especially retail, is collect very little information on particular customers. So you know lots about the population of riders and of users and of drivers, but very little about where they're going, why they're going there. And any of that's what you call longitudinal set to say, well, sometimes Rory does this, but sometimes Rory does that. And we have almost no information on how people are actually using it. There's also a case if someone is a repeat maker of a journey, there's a strong case arguably for shaking up their habits. So there's a wonderful finding, I think it was several universities, Cambridge and London, looked at Oyster card data around a partial tube strike, when about three tube lines went on strike and the rest of the network didn't. And they found that a significant percentage of people continued making their in extremist journey that they'd adopted for the tube strike after the strike had ended because they discovered something. Either they'd never tried it before and subsequently discovered it was better, or they had tried it before, but five years ago, and now they discovered there's an M&S Simply Food at the other place, so they can combine their trip home on this new route with a bit of a shopping trip. My behaviour completely changed when a coffee shop opened at one of my local stations, because previously it only had two trains an hour, and so you had to arrive a bit early to allow the margin of error, get back to my thing again, which meant you were a bit bored. And once the nice guy opened with his coffee stand, I used the station probably three times as frequently because there was something to do while I was waiting, effectively. Or I could reframe the time as coffee drinking rather than waiting, perhaps. But there's a really interesting question, which is giving people, and this applies to, that, by the way, to multimodal use. Shaking car drivers into using a train occasionally means that when they make subsequent decisions, they'll make an informed decision. People run on rails. People run very largely by habit and social copying. So in some senses, one of the things I've proposed this for years is that when you buy a car, what used to be a tax disc, your road transport fund license or whatever it's called, actually that should come with £100 of rail vouchers, just so that everybody who owns a car makes a train journey occasionally, knows how to use it, where you park, where the trains go. They'll put in the effort to actually understand what the trains do. They'll make a journey. For 50% of those people, that journey will be surprisingly good. And next time, they'll probably go by car as well anyway, okay? Because, you know, that's how we roll. But at least they're thinking, what about the train? Whereas previously, it wasn't even entering into their consciousness in the first place. As we think about alternative routes, are there tools which in any way allow us to plan these sorts of call it multimodal journeys, which take into account different goals or less obvious routes versus just the tools, e.g. Google Maps, which just optimise for speed typically. I like to give everybody a valuable tip. Okay, If you ever want to get to Bristol or you want to get to Exeter and you're not in a desperate hurry, there are direct trains from Waterloo to Bristol Temple Meads and to Exeter. Now, because when you search on national rail, it tends to vastly overweight speed, these trains become completely invisible. And it always says, even if you say Waterloo to Exeter, it says, take the tube to Paddington, get a train to Exeter, right? Now, that is faster. Okay, but A, it involves two modes of travel rather than one. It's a bit more hassle. B, because nobody knows about, because nobody can see the Waterloo to Exeter trains on the web, they're absurdly underused and therefore insanely cheap. I had a daughter and three friends who had to get some weird festival in the West Country. And I actually bought them first class advance tickets to Exeter. I mean, they're only fucking 19. I shouldn't be spoiling them like that, really. But nonetheless, I thought, well, okay, it's only like three quid more. And it's actually a really enjoyable trip. Now, in order to find that journey, you've got to put 
via Salisbury. No one except me and Pete and maybe you and 27 other train nerds is going to go, let's try via Salisbury. You simply proceed without knowing that that route exists. And so that's a classic case where if there was an option which said scenic route or best value route, that would show up. But at the moment, this exists with sat-navs, okay? Sat-navs tend to prioritise expected arrival time. But actually, if you're catching a flight you might want to sacrifice the average speed for low variance, which is if I go on the B road or the A road rather than the M25, it will on average take me 15 minutes longer, but I won't get stuck behind a jackknifed semi, as the Americans call it, and end up missing my plane. I have quite high optionality. If the A25 gets closed, I can whiz off towards Eden Bridge and go cross country. If the M25 gets closed, I'm totally stiffed. And so humans instinctively understand things like variance and optionality, which models don't understand at all, because they're trying to optimise for a narrow set of variables. So here's a parallel question, if, if I may. So we've talked a little about some of the simple, rather cheap nudges that we can put in place to enable more efficient systems. But beyond transport design, what kind of behavioural nudges might workplaces introduce to release the strain on transport systems, particularly if everyone still wants to commute Tuesdays through Thursdays? So oh. we're getting a little into COVID effects. I've been ranting about this to my own staff which is the most nonsensical sentence you can utter is, I had to get in early today because I had a lot of email to, to do. Do that the night before, do it at home. Part of flexible working isn't just deciding what days to come in, it's deciding what time of day. And if you can allow your staff to work flexibly to the extent that they can come into the office at 11 and maybe stay till 6, that's an off-peak train ticket for some of them or an off-peak tube journey for some of them. And what you've just given them is a significant pre-tax pay rise by allowing them to do that with some frequency. So, yeah, I would emphatically say that in some ways this it's bad news for the finance departments of Transport for London. But two things I will say is that potentially we might find that COVID and the adoption of video conferencing and just different patterns of travel behaviour. One, we've gifted the UK with a world-class road and rail network at zero cost, simply by shifting the times at which people use it. I mean, it's always been true, by the way, the UK has always had a world-class rail network at Wednesday lunchtime. Now, you go and travel up to Manchester Wednesday lunchtime, you get an advanced first-class ticket for peanuts, the train's half empty, you can look out of the window, it's brilliant. And the road network is always brilliant at three o'clock, but it would be, they tend to do too many roadworks overnight, which pisses me off. Why night birds like me always get persecuted by the roadwork people slightly annoys me totally i'm then trying to do you a favor by traveling at a less crowded time and you stiff mm. it up with a load of cones but anyway i can see the logic although it is an interesting question isn't it that all rail engineering works happen like at christmas and easter and philosophically there's a bit of me which goes i see so you ruin people's valuable spare time just so that people can get into goldman sachs at 7 30 are we always sure that's the right way around to look at this there is that vital thing that if you change the way people use it, you improve the system far more than investing money in the system might obtain, because that might actually have knock-on effects where investment simply creates more misuse. If I might add, Daniel, specifically about employers, I'll share two neat examples, really sort of change more the social world around transport. Rory's touched on retiming. And really important aspect would be changing the workplace attire and culture and for changing facilities and to some extent the punctuality at which you're required to arrive at work in order to encourage active travel, which is walking and cycling, to make it that little bit easier and more permissible to say that's a fine way to get in and we'll support it. The second neat way I think that has a lot of mileage is for employers to collect information on how their 
employees commute in. One big step there is that the generators of journeys, they're requiring people to move in and we think therefore have some responsibility over the social environmental costs of those trips. But secondly, it's handy information for anyone that currently works, let alone new joiners, to understand not to the postcode to the address, but broadly, how do people get into this workplace when so that you can change your habits and you can actually start noticing, oh, that's quite smart. I didn't realize that person used that road or that way. Or in the case of Blackfriars, using the Thames link, which wasn't previously on the tube map, but now is. And of course, acknowledging, oh, lots of people walk in cycle. That's nice. Um, maybe I'll um, ask them how they do that. Let's talk about the impact of COVID on transport a bit more, because apart from the obvious that people have been moving around rather less. Actually, let's just raise another question. Okay. Which is, if we're going to do high speed too, let's ask intelligent questions like, will there be some sort of flexible ticketing? How much is it going to cost? Will I be able to board an earlier train? Because if a train's leaving every 10 minutes, it's stupid investing all the money and the speed of a journey where I have to spend 40 minutes at Euston Station before. But also questions like, will there be little video conferencing booths on the train? Or at least at the station? I mean, to be honest, you could improve Euston Station by doing almost anything. Simply demolishing it would be a start. But I mean, we need to rethink the architecture. I mean, one of the things that really annoys me is seat back flaming tables. Okay, the Thameslink trains, which in some cases go from Brighton to Bedford. Now, most people aren't taking the train from Brighton to Bedford. I get that. But they're fairly long range trains. They didn't put bloody seat back tables on. They're great trains, by the way. I really like the trains. I like the fact that they imitate the noise of the giant ants in the 1950s horror film Them, whenever they start off. If you don't believe me, go on YouTube. But I love the trains. They're fantastic. They don't generally have three-person side seating, which the previous trains did, which people really sodding hate, okay? Sitting three abreast with strangers is horrible. They've got it all right, but then they fell at the last hurdle. I would often take a slower train on Thameslink because it takes me straight to Blackfriars, but I've hacked it because there's a, an unused first-class compartment at the back, which actually has some tables. But I'm conscious that 90% of the people at the train are just sitting there staring into space for want of a sodding table. They probably spent years discussing points configuration and running order and stuff like that. And nobody can be bothered to put a table on the thing. Our architecture hasn't caught up with our technology. Our yeah. street furniture hasn't caught up with our technology. So is this the goal of the book, actually, to encourage designers to think a little more creatively? Aristotle spotted this, right? I mean, this is 2,500 years old, which is you can use science when things can only be how they are. It is correct to use the scientific method in things like gravity, where things can only be where they are. But when things can be other than how they are, and that basically includes psychology, you have to ask the question, how do we want things to be? And that's a different approach. That's a design approach. It's not a reductionist scientific approach. So what's so ironic about this is Aristotle, who kind of created science to a degree, or Western science, okay, spotted this problem day one. Right. If you're dealing with problems which could be other than how they are, in other words, we could get people who are angry about waiting or we could make the wait really enjoyable. The job there is to use design thinking and to some extent creativity to say, what else could this be? And yet the transport network is dominated by people who pretend things are, can only be as they are. And therefore, they solve for a very narrow set of assumptions. 
I want to switch gears with like I actually wanted to bring in, not physically, sadly, our friend uh, Nassim Taleb into the conversation on a little tangent, but it's a shame not to most of the time. Now, there's a position, I think, which you took up, Rory, in your previous book, Alchemy, that would say analogously that driving an electric vehicle allows drivers to claim eco-friendliness. Well, actually, the main motivation is likely different, e.g. Tesla drivers. Or, for example, hotels will put signs on doors encouraging guests to reuse last night's linen as it's good for the environment. Where actually, you know, they care primarily about the bottom line. Now, that may be just a bit of benign social proof by saying, you know, this is what most customers do. Now, your position, Rory, which I think, by the way, is rather fair, is that, you know, if the outcome is positive, then it matters little if the starting objective, i.e., you know, showing off in a Tesla or improving your bottom line is different. But Taleb said something rather different in Fooled by Randomness, saying that actually this is really disingenuous behavior. There's really the zero skin in the game. It's highly uncourageous behavior. It's sort of duplicitous, if you like. But I'm wondering to what extent you would agree with that or if it's okay, even if objective is slightly different from outcome. I suppose that I'd be very naughty, okay? Now, now, Taleb also says something very interesting, which is there's no such thing as rational beliefs. There is only rational behaviour. And his defence of religion would be, if an irrational belief leads to behaviour which is beneficial to the collective, then you can't denigrate it as irrational. I mean, even at the individual level, I think I mostly don't walk under ladders because of superstition, even though I'm a, a, you know, 56-year-old, reasonably rational bloke. I think the bigger driver for my not walking under ladders is strangely the childhood belief that it's unlucky, not the fact that I've been exposed to a lot of health and safety statistics about the inadvisability of walking under ladders. Now, if my superstition about walking under ladders creates a benign behaviour, I would argue to some extent, who cares? To be honest, okay, my only regret about the book was that there is a big enough section on electric cars because we wrote it before that had actually reached a tipping point. But the great thing I suddenly realised is it now allows us to issue another, a new updated edition in two years' time with a whole new EV edition, which means we can sell the same product twice. But I think what will also happen, it's worth remembering that people's attitudes follow their behaviour as much as happens the other way around. So to some extent, people will get a Tesla for all kinds of selfish reasons, but the act of driving a Tesla will make them more environmentally conscious. So I've bought an electric car, and I'm already exploring the possibility of solar power for the electric car by dint of owning the thing. Now, I'll be candid with you. The electric cars are a bit of a Columbus's egg. They're a bit like the mobile phone. and Nobody really wants them until you have one. And then it becomes inconceivable to do it any other way. The air fryer. There are various products which nobody wants until they have them because their use effectively completely reshapes your utility function. The act of owning something completely changes your notion of what is utility. So in this case, I think with the electric car, it's very weird, because once you drive it, going back to a petrol car feels fundamentally slightly wrong. Now, I have no idea whether that's because of environmental consciousness, or whether it's just because of the way they drive, or because they're so gloriously silent, or because the high-end torque's so good. What's also interesting, by the way, now, I don't know if this is demography, or if it's a product of the user interface of the electric car. But you drive like a Quaker. Have you ever been cut up by an electric car? Now, I thought one of the problems with electric cars is because they can have supercar performance, we're going to have a load of people driving around like idiots. And yet, in reality, when you first get your electric car, you do do a little bit of that kind of, okay, take it onto a straight stretch of road and floor it. But by the time you get to week three, you're driving like a chauffeur. And the other weird thing is regenerative braking makes you much more benign towards other road users. Because if the git in front of you breaks for no apparent reason, in a petrol car, you have the feeling you have robbed me of my hard-bought kinetic energy, you bastard. And in the electric car, you don't even have to brake. 
So the brake pads on my Ford Mustang Mach-E are designed to outlive the car because most of the braking is done by the motor, which is regenerating, okay, not at 100% efficiency. But when I slow down, because acceleration is so easy and enjoyable and because deceleration is less costly, instead of getting angry with the person in front, I just go, oh, this person has decided to slow down. I think I'll slow down as well. And so your relationship with other road users changes in a very peculiar way. It's like converting to Quakerism on the roads. Very strange. It's going to diminish road rage over the next generation, perhaps. I want to ask about some of the innovations that are exciting you. They could be COVID-inspired or otherwise, because I am interested, I touched on it earlier, about what are the things around COVID changes in transport that have surprised you? What have you learned? But alongside that, you could also answer the question in terms of some of the crazy ideas, perhaps, that you hear are being discussed behind closed doors, which might have potential. Oh, that sounds like a juicy question. It's not behind closed doors, but it is an innovation. It's slightly technological. It's being trialled in Coventry in the UK. It's called Mobility Credits. And it's a smart scheme that builds on what are called car scrappage schemes. So people spend somewhere around a thousand to two thousand pounds a year just to own a vehicle, tax insurance, a bit of fuel, and a little bit more. Mobility credit says if you trade your car in, we'll give you three thousand pounds worth of public transport and car hire vouchers. The vouchers are actually administered, and this is the technological piece, through a credit card that can only be spent through transport companies, really. So this car hire fills in the gap where you say, well, cars useful sometime, but you don't necessarily need to have a car in your driveway the whole time. A very compelling, very interesting proposition that works with the grain of people who don't particularly want to own a vehicle and allows them to adapt to a life where they are enabled and empowered to use their local public transport and now increasingly car share schemes. Uh, really promising, really interesting. Not Coventry, exactly Coventry is a tough test market because Brummies, I know they're technically not Brummies, okay, but people in the West Midlands do really love their... I mean, apart from anything, you're depriving them of conversation because Brummies' favourite conversation is which road did you take to get here? Um, is that so, a statistically significant yeah, observation? Uh, uh, trust me, okay. It's something Londoners never do. I've never quite understood this because as a provincial myself, I have some sympathy with, well, actually, we decided to take the A23, but then we got stuck behind the traffic. You know, I quite like those conversations, but they're social death if you're a Londoner for some reason. But it's quite bold of Coventry taking that decision in what is used to be the car manufacturing centre of the UK. And it has, it's worth noting, by the way, that an awful lot of the conversations around transport are woefully London-centric. And actually, a lot of the conversations about flexible working is slightly London-centric as well, because if you have reasonable-sized, sensible, highly attractive cities like Liverpool, Newcastle, Bristol, getting into town to work and getting home again is not a totally impossible burden so you can lead a life that's as rural or as urban as you like. The problem happens with something like London where in order to enjoy low population density you have to move about 28 miles out and that's expensive and time consuming. So I totally support any of those experiments with new forms of currency. So what they've done is they've created a credit card which you can only spend on transport. And funnily enough, they're mimicking what a friend of mine did when he got rid of his car in London. He realised that the problem of getting rid of his car is that the car has a high upfront purchase cost and a low marginal cost of use. So once you own a car, you tend to use it quite freely. The problem of selling a car is that he said previously you would have just driven to Ikea for the lols one Saturday. Once you have to rent a car or take a taxi, even though you are saving money overall, the incremental cost is much, much higher. So what he did, this friend of mine, he very good Cambridge mathematician, but he adopted a psychological solution where he just set up a separate bank account 
and he put into that bank account all the money he was previously spending on the car. The insurance, the purchase value, obviously, you know, I think his parking costs in London. And he made a rule that he could only use that bank account for any form of public transport he liked. And he pronounced himself delighted with the results because he said, I actually discovered I had quite a large surplus when I went to see my mum in Dorset. I used to go first class on the train. And, you know, I would casually take a taxi to Ikea if I felt like it because I didn't feel the guilt of using the money when I effectively pre-allocated the money as transport budget. It's what's called cookie jar accounting in behavioural science. I also think, by the way, we need to create currencies for use of public goods. What interests me about currencies, and this is an aside, so apologies, Pete, we already have these parallel currencies. They're called things like Avios points, okay? They're called things like Nectar. They're called things like Boots and Vantage points. They're a parallel currency where you earn them differently from money and you spend them slightly differently. And it's always struck me as interesting. If you created a kind of egalitarian currency for things like parking permits, anything to do with public provision, you could create a system which would reveal willingness to pay independent of ability to pay. That strikes me as a fundamentally interesting thing to do with road pricing, by the way. You know, I think everybody in Britain has the right to drive into London once a year. And by the way, once a year, I live in Seven Oaks, I drive into London about three times a year, maybe four. Okay, the last time was to pick up someone from a railway station as a courtesy. The time before was to pick someone up from hospital where, you know, it was the only thing you could really do. And so I think looking at a kind of pricing mechanism which enables kind of intelligent rationing is quite interesting. Because I'm very worried about London at the moment, because it strikes me that when you drive into London, if you're doing an unfamiliar journey, there's a one in 10 chance you'll end up with an unexpected 80 quid fine. You'll misunderstand the parking, you'll drive 30 in a 20 zone, because the speed limit in London is basically now a random number generator. You'll drive into some zero emissions lane without noticing it. And I've suddenly realised that it's now impossible for people below median income to take the risk of driving into London. And so some sort of system where you're awarded a certain number of points at the beginning of the year, and if you want to buy more of those points, the cost of the points is proportionate to your wealth or earned income, would be a very interesting experiment. For God's sake, I'm not proposing introducing it, you know, wholesale. But the experiments with parallel currencies for things which are a mixture of kind of private good and club good and public good could be really worthwhile. And I think you highlight, you know, a number of ways there in which the future is about how we personalize our journeys, how we create more sophisticated systems and how we introduce greater variety and sort of alternative choice architecture, if you like, into how we move around. I mean, if you clever, a seat frog is beauty. Seat frog is now experimenting. I think it's Australian, is it originally? But seat frog originally it's bid for a first class upgrade because on a lot of trains at non-peak business hours, first class compartments are underused. So you can kind of bid for an upgrade. Beautiful idea, in my opinion. Now they're experimenting, I think, with LNER, if I've got that right, on bids to go on an earlier or later train, even if you have an advanced ticket. This stuff is cracking, by the way. I mean, I love them. I'm totally happy plugging that service. I'm also really, really interested in the whole electric car infrastructure thing, because one of the things I was just suggested in my Spectator article is when you have the fuel crisis... There was a solution to the fuel crisis, which was minimum spend at the pump. So you could only fill up with petrol economically if you were down to a quarter full or less. So you'd basically just go, okay, £40 minimum spend. And therefore, people who are stockpiling, who already had three quarters of a tank, well, they could fill up, but it would cost them a hell of a lot of money to do so. Now, I don't think that works because of perceived fairness. It gives people with a huge 4 by 4 an enormous advantage over people with a Nissan Micra. But I think it might work for electric cars. 
So if you have four charging points, okay, the electric car charger knows your level of battery charge when you plug it in, and it actually displays it on a screen. So it, let's imagine you have four car chargers. It would make sense if three of them were being used for the fourth one to say, I am reserved exclusively for people who are 25% or below. So the people who are just charging up out of expediency would drive on to the next charger, and people who are desperate would be confident of the ability to charge their car. So, you know, it could say, OK, if there's only one last charger available, that is only reserved for charging people from 25% or below to 50% max. Unless while they're charging to 50%, one of the other chargers becomes available, in which case they're free to carry on. And the other charger then becomes the 25% or below charger. I think there are really clever things we can do if we think ultimately this is being able to solve problems at more than one scale. And the great problem of transport engineers is they can only solve it at the kind of systemic scale of the individual individual network. I've argued repeatedly that Transport for London should welcome Uber in a way because the existence of Uber bizarrely causes me to use public transport more, even when I don't use Uber. Now, again, what the hell am I talking about? No, because I know Uber exists, I'm happy taking the train because I know, well, if the worst happens, I've got a fallback, which is Uber. Or if I go and see my friend at, you know, 11 o'clock on Saturday, I'll be able to get to Charing Cross because there's Uber, whereas previously I might have driven in for fear of missing the last train home. So these things in interact in 3D chess, highly complex ways. Yeah, that kind of interaction connectivity, I think, is really the future. I mean, one area we haven't touched on, we, we, time, time may get ahead of us, but is this, what other sectors can we learn from? What other modes of transport can, for example, TFL learn from? And, and how, do, how does that go both ways? What can we steal and imitate? Well, I'll give you one interesting example, actually, which is that even elsewhere in the travel industry, it strikes me as interesting that rail and airlines don't borrow from each other very much. One way I'd actually redo trains, okay, commuter line trains, is I'd get rid of first class, but I'd say that people who make the journey more than 200 times a year are allowed to sit in a separate category of seating, or more than 100 times a year. Let me explain why, okay? If you make the journey once a year and you've got to stand, it's a pisser, but it doesn't ruin your life. If you make the journey 100 times a year and you have to stand on 80 of those occasions, it's a major pain. Now, airlines, it's the shape of a lounge or it's the shape of a separate check-in lane, something like that. I think that actually we should probably consider looking at two-class transit on rail networks and saying, actually, maybe, you know, maybe there is a small charge for using it anyway. Maybe it's a modest charge, but it's reserved for people who are, if you like, uh, sorry, frequent users of the network. That's an insight from the airline industry, which is you're much more sensitive to queuing at check-in if you fly 40 times a year than if you fly once. Your sensitivity to time and impatience is fundamentally a function of the frequency with which you perform the action. I'll tell you a lovely story from that. This is borrowing from the hotel industry. The Starwood Hotel chain developed an app where you could go straight to your room using your phone as a key. 90% of the members of their loyalty program were basically uninterested in this. Almost all of the members of their highest tier of the loyalty program, who are the most frequent hotel stayers, basically signed up and started using it immediately. Because these are people who stay at a hotel 20 times a year and waiting at reception behind an American Airlines flight crew just to get your room key really, really pisses them off. Whereas your person who goes and stays at a tarp star on their annual holiday or their school reunion just doesn't see the benefit. That's very Taleb. 
which is Taleb's point, is that we treat data sets as if they're kind of uniform. And actually, they're highly chunky. Give you another example. Taleb's work on IQ, which shows that IQ correlates with success largely because people with a very low IQ are very rarely above average income. And most of the correlation is driven by one side of the curve. I think that's also true about punctuality. I'm sure that punctuality correlates with passenger satisfaction, but I'm equally sure that 90% of that is driven by the fact that people whose train was an hour late or whose flight was two hours late are seriously sodding angry. It's not a linear relationship where people whose flight is two minutes late are mildly angry. They don't care. So you can see correlations in data and then draw that stupid straight line through the data and confidently proclaim there's a correlation when if there's a major non-linearity in the way the data presents itself, and in IQ, it basically flattens out above a certain point, the relationship between wealth and IQ, weirdly. The correlation is driven by one side of the chart. So I think much more nuanced use of statistics is part and parcel of this. It requires context. uh, This is where homo transporticus is such a problem because he's a single representative agent. And we assume if we make him happy or her happy, everybody's happy. Well, it's about planning for average versus planning for the I'll give you another example. Don't get rid of first-class rail, right? Everybody who's a bit of a lefty really dislikes first-class rail. Pete probably dislikes it, actually, because he's he's way to the left of me politically, okay? But my argument is, whoa, 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 different competitive set, right? If you're travelling by train in standard, it may be because you've got no other mode of transport. What you really want is a cheap ticket. If you're going in first-class rail, your competitive set is your jag. Now, the point is that first-class rail is kind of nicer than driving, in a way that second-class rail probably isn't. So if you want to compete with different modes of transport, you need to offer different pricing and value options yourself. I mean, the biggest change, of course, is the annual season ticket is basically a dud. By the way, ludicrously, you know, the parking season ticket is an absurdity, okay? So most of these stations around me have the premium car park is annual season ticket holders only. The best parking space is now space that nobody wants because who the hell's going to pay five days a week for something they use too? Exactly. Shall we do some travel and transport special quick fire to wrap up? Yes, please. It was a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, either way. So you can both answer these or one of you can, depending on what comes to mind. First one is, what is your John Cleese clockwise transport memory or nightmare? The Thames link, when I needed to get to Radlett, I hadn't used it much before. And it's the assumption of a new user that it feels a bit like a tube train, but then it doesn't announce the stations or the doors don't open when they arrive and it's dark and there's not any lights on at the station. So I cruised through one way and ended up at Luton Airport. And then on the way back, I still went through even when I was looking and I thought this design just cannot be right. And it needs some more empathy to new users and something needs to be fixed here because it's just didn't happen. Okay, let's do another one. Either of you can come into this. What's a regular commute that you've come to really enjoy? Oh, that's a good one. I live in Seven Oaks. Now, here's a really interesting one, okay. A bit of a recommendation for the Move to Kent Brigade, which is Kent had three competing rail networks in the early Victorian era. They were all competing to get to the channel ports because they saw it as high value. So we have a high level of redundancy, and then they added high-speed one, which adds a further level of redundancy. So if you live in Kent, you can nearly always get home or close to home, even if one light becomes messed up. And interestingly, I frequently use Otford Station, slightly further away than Seven Oaks, and with a less frequent service. And I travel in on the Thameslink trains to Blackfriars, which is where our office is. It takes an hour. In time terms, it's insane. You can get there in about 33 minutes if you go Seven Oaks and change at London Bridge. But it's an hour of pretty good 4G and 5G coverage with a table in a largely empty train 
in a very scenic route. And I take that route to work by preference, probably 50% of the time. Oxford Station is also a little bit brief encounter. You know, there are little elements of that which make it quite atmospheric. But that's a classic case of me very consciously deviating from what Homo transporticus would be presumed to do. Got it. Let's try another one. What world transport experience is top of your bucket list? I think the Tokyo Metro, which appears in the introduction of the book for its uh, unique jingles and station announcements at each station, supposedly composed with the character and the semblance of the neighbourhood in mind and optimised for a length, enables people to know that's that station without much more announcement. Just seems charming, interesting, smart. I love it. I think mine would be Canadian or American Rail, which is something like either Denver to San Francisco or Oakland. There isn't actually a station in San Francisco, is it? It's served by a place just outside or one of those big Canadian runs. I mean, rather tragically, I was walking down the street in Toronto with a bunch of my Canadian colleagues and I demanded to go into the main station, slightly to their annoyance, because I just wanted to look at the departure board where in Britain, you know, the departure board says things like Radlett, Dorking, and their departure board said things like Yellowknife or Medicine Hat, okay, you know, (laughs) places which are literally three time zones away. And I just stood there in rapt awe. I mean, I just loved it. And I have done a few of the longer train journeys, but I absolutely love them because it's a cruise ship on wheels. Fantastic. So this next question, I suspect I may know your answer to at least, Rory, but it's an either or. Airline first class or Orient Express? I have to admit, I have been upgraded to first. Now, okay, Paul Dolan, who's one of the great experts in happiness at the LSE, two interesting things he does. He has a Rolex and he also travels into work first class from Hove. And I said, okay, you're a big expert on happiness. Why the Rolex? And he said, well, if I divide the cost by the number of times I look at it and the number of times my son's going to look at it and the enjoyment derived therefrom, it's not actually that extravagant. I get a little buzz 40 times a day. Very interesting reframing. But the first class thing, he argues, is it turns something which is normally a bit of a chore into an active pleasure. And I have to say that about the best of first class air travel, which when I've been lucky enough to have it, which is rare. And also I had a moment which can never be recreated, which is the only time I've travelled full fare first class at a client's bidding. I went into the Concord Lounge at Heathrow Terminal 5. There was only one person at the champagne bar standing there with a glass of champagne, and it was Alan Wicker. (laughs) Okay. I don't know whether British Airways just paid Alan Wicker towards the end of his life to stand at the champagne bar. Sorry, everybody under 40 is going, who the hell is he talking about? But to anybody who grew up in my era, this was just magic. And so in fairness, okay, making things amazing is great. And both the Orient Express and First Class both managed to do that. One other thing which surprisingly I liked, but I'm, I'm a bit down on flying now for environmental reasons because I bought an electric car. I bought an electric car for the acceleration, but it does change your attitude. These things happen backwards. I'm now going to become a committed environmentalist because all my friends with petrol cars are going to just rant at them about killing polar bears just for the lols. But the non-stop flight from London to Perth, which was kind of amazing, even better on the return leg, the International Transfers Lounge at Perth Airport has the most Australian thing in the world. There's an outdoor area and they do a barbie. Oh, wow. <laughs> so one thing I really mourn is the homogeneity of international travel, which is airports are becoming indistinguishable. You know, you could put me out of action with chloroform and drop me at a random international airport. I have no idea where I was. And so those touches, which are distinctive and eccentric, really, really matter. And this awful generica that's starting to infect travel, where in a way, the world, individual places are becoming more diverse. You can get Burmese or Korean food in London. You couldn't do that 50 years ago, okay? But the world, when you travel it, 
varies less and less. So there comes an argument, which is, should you take your two weeks holiday in London, exploring the diverse ethnic restaurants, rather than flying halfway around the world to land an airport, which seems pretty much like Heathrow Terminal 5? Now, there's something to be said for that. Well, let's give you a city break choice penultimately. Las Vegas or Lisbon city break? Oh, I think Lisbon are all over for me. I think the Lisbon have got a lot of good metro and active transport things going on. And they're thinking quite carefully about re-articulating the street layouts in an interesting way. By the way, that must be the ultimate geek answer for motivation <laughs> for going to Lisbon. Yes, and the trams. You didn't mention the trams. There are trams which are like, you know, catnip for transport nerds. They might actually be cable cars. It's very steep, Lisbon. The Portuguese are very, very interesting. There's a design culture in Portugal, which is extraordinarily worth visiting. My third answer to the question is YouTube, which is 4K. I'm not sure I'm comfortable flying for a one or two night stay. EY, the consulting firm, has banned flights for staff unless you're staying somewhere two nights or more. That's probably a bit heavy-handed. Some people might game the system by contriving. But nonetheless, I'm no longer quite comfortable doing it. Partly value for time, partly value for carbon. And the third thing I'll offer is YouTube, which is if you've got a big 4K smart TV, there are 4K walking tours of the world's cities. There are also things like window swap, which basically people film 10 minutes out of their window and you can just circulate between different views of the world. And actually, virtual tourism is kind of interesting. And now, okay, Pete is a massive devotee of the Facebook Oculus Quest, aren't you? Is that right, Pete? VR headsets are, are amazing. They really yeah. immerse you even more than you would expect. There's some things going on there that I think are very interesting indeed, yeah. So I do ask the philosophical question, is it value for carbon to go to Machu Picchu when, to be absolutely honest, a combination of 20 minutes on a VR headset and a two-hour National Geographic documentary will probably deliver 80% of the value? And the extent to which travel is used as bragging rights. If I'm going to be a bit cheeky about young people, okay, young people would be very snarky about the status signalling of my generation, which would be the BMW M5 or whatever. But travelling to distant and obscure places, and this is facilitated by social media, by the way, in part. And the guy who predicted this was Jeffrey Miller. And Jeffrey Miller, who wrote The Mating Mind, said that we show off things we can show off. Now, for some reason, I wouldn't post a picture of my new car on Facebook or Twitter, because it would seem like a really weird Post. But weirdly, if I go to some obscure beach resort in the South Pacific, that's fair game. And that does worry me a bit. So my favourite ad campaign of all time is the Ogilvy Germany ad campaign, which shows photographs of places in Germany that look very much like great tourist destinations, which are a long haul flight away, and compares the cost of getting there by rail and the cost of getting there by plane. And what's beautiful about that, by the way, is it leaves the environmental message implicit but unsaid. And that's an advertising campaign for Deutsche Bahn, which used quite a lot of sophisticated sophisticated AI in finding bridges in Germany that looked like famous bridges in China and so on. And to me, absolutely honest, okay, you know, I'm old now. There are a few places I really want to go back to long haul, like New Mexico. And to be honest, I really want to go to Australia and I really want to go to New Zealand one day. And I like India enormously. But to be honest, is there that much correlation between how far you fly and how much fun you have? Well, do you still <laughs> still think there's enormous implicit sort of signalling value yeah. in why the hell we go? Well, maybe it's like going to the opera. The Jewish comedian Jackie Mason used to joke that they'd get up at the end and go, so what was it about? That was about three hours. And the signalling thing is to some extent innate and it's to some extent unconscious. Now, interestingly, there have been positive changes, okay? So it's perfectly okay for a multimillionaire now in the UK to spend their 
their summer holiday in Cornwall. I spent a little bit of my summer holiday in Margate. Now, I jokingly said that if I'd said to my colleagues in 1989 that I was going to go to Margate on holiday, they would have had me sectioned or had a whip round for me to go to Spain. So things change. Fashions change. They're highly malleable. And it's always worth asking the question, you know, are fashions generally useful? You know, I think the whole electric car industry was driven in the early stages by novelty-seeking and show-offs. But it's a beneficial technology that emerges. The Cornwall thing is also about what you have to prove. It's the, it's analogous with what car you choose to drive. If you're a wealthy aristocrat, you can go around in an mm. old Ford Cortina or an old a VW Banger because you're not aspiring any longer to driving the BMW. It matters less. You've got less to show. And also, also, everybody knows that it's a choice, not a compromise. This is why we've got to be very careful about high-status people signalling their bicycling habits. Because if you're an Ivy League graduate and you work at Goldman Sachs, you've patently chosen to cycle to work. If you work at Pizza Hut, your colleagues will just assume you can't afford a car. So the same thing has a different meaning in different milieu. And we should be very wary of environmental virtue signaling, which doesn't scale, which is something I can get away with because I already have high status in other areas. I'll give an example. George Monbiot, his job is to be an environmental commentator. So if he says to someone hosting a conference in Copenhagen, I'm going to have to come by train, they go, well, absolutely, that's fine because it's an environmental conference and it's entirely congruent with George Monbiot. If you're a junior business person and all your bosses are flying to Copenhagen and you say, I'm terribly sorry, I want to go by train, that is not actually a bonus mark. That's Sutherland being a bit of a weirdo. So we have to be mindful of the context in which decisions are made. For sure. I'm going to do one final last question and then we'll wrap. If you had to rely on only one mode of transport for the rest of your lives, what would it be? Pete's going to hate me for this, but you go first, Pete, because it's going to be your bloody bicycle, isn't it? Your titanium. Well, I couldn't do without The bicycle is both a mode of transport and a sport and leisure activity, and it gives me, where I live, a great deal of freedom to move around how and when I'd like to. Yeah, for me, hard to see past the bicycle. Actually, bicycle plus train, if you're allowed to, that would be pretty interesting. In five years' time, mine might be electric motorhome, because I'm really intrigued by what electrification can do in terms of creating completely different modes of transport. So it'd be a mobile office, it'd be a hotel room, and it'd be a form of transportation. At the moment, I've just got the Ford Mustang Mach-E, and what is joyous about it... Okay, this is slightly weird, but... There's a weird argument that, to some extent, Toyota destroyed the car as a form of enjoyment because it made them so reliable, so predictable, so affordable, that there was no longer any kind of challenge or complexity you had to overcome. And it gave you nothing to talk about. And the great thing about electric cars is... If you meet anybody else who's got an electric car, you're automatically best buddies because you have this immediate thing in common. You start going on about how there's a 175 kilowatt charger just off the M11 at Frampton Bussett. You know, I said it to Mark Reed at WPP. I said, this is golf for the 21st century. You know, if you've got a client who's got an electric car, get an electric car because you're friends for life. And the ultimate thing would be for me to actually what I'd really like. OK, I'm going to raise this because depending on who your listeners are. We've screwed up the marketing of solar power. We assume that you have to spend £30,000 in one go attaching something irremovable to your roof with a considerable risk of disaster, huge disruption, and a 3% chance of catastrophe, either structural catastrophe or your local electricity board tells you they won't credit you for the energy you feed in and there's nothing you can do about it because of Section 3, Subsection 2B, right? We need Lego electric power, modular. Now, 
I can go to any fast charger in my district and charge up to 80% pretty quickly. BP Pulse or Genie Point or any of those providers can, with some effort, make sure that energy is environmentally friendly. Not much point in staying in a 50 kilowatt charger or even a 175 kilowatt charger beyond 85% because the battery can only take sort of 11 kilowatts going in per hour at that higher rate of charge. I want a small solar solution, which means that the final 15% of my battery is always solar generated at home, which means then that 90% of my journeys, because most days I drive six miles, that would mean that 90% of my days are solar powered. Today, I'm not driving anywhere. My car's sitting out there in not admittedly, well, not bad sunshine, actually. Why isn't it banging in just a few kilowatt hours of juice while it's sitting there? And nobody's selling me that. Now, okay, you know, that doesn't solve my problem if I've got to drive to Wales. I grant that. I'll have to use chargers or maybe use the electricity grid. But a hell of a lot of my problems would be solved by that, yet it doesn't exist. Well, look, with that, Rory and Pete, let me thank you both for this tour de force on transport, bringing to life what's fundamentally wrong with it, moreover, where we can change it for the better and for making us think about it in new and unusual ways. I absolutely must recommend to anyone who has a passing interest in how we move around or anyone who has imagination for experimentation to buy transport for humans. I think now that you're both an established double act, the sky is the limit for you both now, but only to say thank you both enormously for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting us. And the one bit of luck we couldn't have predicted is now is a very good time to have written the book because of necessity, people are rethinking transport simply because past behaviour is no reliable guide to the future. This is a time of disproportionate open-mindedness. So we're not actually kind of, you know, we're no longer knocking on a locked door. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks Pete, as well. Thank Thank you. And with that, I'm closing out a load of BS for 2021. Today was my 22nd pod of the series, and I hope you'll agree Transport for Humans was a fine way to sign off. Next year, we'll kick off again with interviews with the likes of author and Times columnist David Aronovich, comedian and writer on mindfulness and mental well-being Ruby Wax, another former comedian and now head of BS at JP Morgan Chase, Jeff Chrysler, football broadcaster Guillaume Balaguer talking Pep and Maradona, advertising legend Dave Trott, and former lead psychologist at Cambridge Analytica, Patrick Fagan. Do subscribe on your favourite platform, share with friends for Christmas, leave a review, and we'll be back together in the new year. Happy holidays and be well to all of you.